well, all right. So, so several weeks ago, I was talking to this man, and uh, against my better judgment, I engaged with him, which was foolish, and this was a huge mistake. So we spoke about the things you'd normally expect someone of his age to focus on, like Metamucil, left lane drivers, and eating at 3.30 in the afternoon. And he eventually asked me what I'm going to talk about today, and I said, Luke 15. He said, again? You just did that like two or three years ago. And doctor, I replied, uh, it's been eight years since we talked about this. And then he said, I need to go lie down. And so he left. <laughs> but um, we have, I, I have talked about this particular chapter of Luke um, a couple times, and actually the material that we're going to cover today was first introduced to me by uh, the Weavers. Um, I believe Greg Weaver back in, might have been 2008 or so, uh, first proposed kind of a new, not well, perhaps not a new, but a, a different understanding of Luke 15 that changes the focus, um, and it was so revolutionary to me that it always stuck with me, and I think as I've investigated it more and more, it's proved uh, proven itself over and over, and so I'd like to share that with you this morning. Um, so it's familiar, the chapter is, but it's often misunderstood. Um, and it may be one of the most familiar chapters in the whole council of God's Word, especially in the New Testament. Um, today we're going to focus on several key items in Luke 15. We're going to... Um, Sorry, first, if you don't know why Jesus is delivering the parables and to whom, you'll probably misapprehend their significance. No surprise there. Second, though our tendency is to separate uh, the three parables of the prodigal son, lost sheep, and lost coin, uh, they all must be considered together to figure out what exactly Jesus is, is teaching here. And third, um, I'll make the case that our modern-day focus on the prodigal himself uh, is entirely misplaced, and that he's actually the least important character in the whole chapter, not the most important. Fourth, I'll point out that there's no actual end to the chapter. If you've ever read it before, you might have felt like this is, this is a bit of a cliffhanger, and it's designed by Jesus to be that way, and so we'll look at that. Um, it's actually Jesus kind of inviting you in to finish the parable, or inviting the Pharisees, in this case, in to give a response, which we'll talk about. Fifth and lastly, we'll talk about the radical self-emptying picture of the Father that Jesus reveals throughout these amazing stories. So this painting, oh, nope, this painting here, um, hangs in the front foyer of my parents' home in Florida. It was on my dad's wall. Uh, it is in his windowless office uh, for many, many years. Uh, can anyone name the painting? Anyone name the painter? Yes, Rem I'm not going to say it with the right inflection, but Rembrandt. Um, and it's The Return of the Prodigal Son, uh, which is one of his most famous works. So, um, so in much the same way that the parable of the Good Samaritan itself um, and depictions of it throughout the centuries are familiar to us, the parable of the prodigal is recognized and thought of fondly by 21st century Westerners. However, Though these stories are easily remembered, the context, and if you try and think right now off the top of your head, what is the context for each of those well-known parables, uh, those are maybe not so easily recalled. 
Um, I watched the film Collision many years ago. Perhaps many of you will have seen it, been familiar with it. I believe we even watched it here um, once or twice, maybe even as a congregation many, many years ago. Um, it's a, a documentary about a dialogue between an ongoing dialogue and series of debates between Douglas Wilson, who's a pastor and author and theologian out in um, Idaho. I believe Steve follows him pretty closely. And the late atheist firebrand Christopher Hitchens. Uh, at one point in the film, Hitchens is asked kind of what, uh, what sort of new information Wilson has imparted to him about the scriptures. Um, and Hitchens replies that the parable of the Good Samaritan was really illuminated for him once Wilson described in detail the antipathy and the hatred that um, Jews had for Samaritans, thus making the Samaritan the hero of the parable was a big deal and a detail that Hitchens had missed all of those years. So um, that one detail, and Wendell's talked about that innumerable times, but the one detail importantly ties back to the question uh, that gave rise to the parable of the Good Samaritan in the first place, the Jewish teacher of the law uh, pointedly asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? i.e., who is the neighbor that the Old Testament law calls me to love? So that is the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which, again, is a little bit harder to recall than the parable itself. So just as it proved transformative for Hitchens to fully understand uh, Jesus' teaching of loving one's neighbor and why he gave it, even if that neighbor is reviled, so too it will help us to see Luke 15 with new eyes if we understand exactly why Jesus tells these three separate stories that all make the same point. So as Kenneth Bailey points out in his book, and this is the book I would point you to if you care to do more investigation on the matter, Finding the Lost Cultural Keys to Luke 15, he says, for Jesus's original audience, the parable was like a political cartoon. And you've all seen political cartoons in newspapers and periodicals, at least those of you who are older than 20 would have. But um, the full weight of its message was clear to any perceptive listener who shared the language, religion, history, and culture of the speaker. But what of the reader who came to that same story 2,000 years later? What the original speaker intended to say to the original listeners remains the center of our quest, and that will be this morning as well. When we turn to Luke 15, 1 and 2, and you're free to do so, I'll have the, um, I'll have the verses up on the screen here as well. Uh, we see what gave rise to these three remarkable parables. So Luke 15, 1 and 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, being Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Here we see the familiar complaint from the Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, etc., towards Jesus. The man fraternizes and shows acceptance towards sinners and outcasts in Jewish society. Sinners here is, uh, in the words of uh, Gary Inrig, it's referring to people, or referring to the ordinary people who lived with indifference to the rigorous observances of the pious, that being the Pharisees. The religious, quote-unquote religious, uh, derisively called them the people of the land, the unobservant, the unclean. This sort of interaction uh, that Jesus has with the Pharisees in these first two verses is like a drumbeat throughout the Gospels. Classes of people that the teachers of the law thought so reprehensible that they refused to even teach the law to them. I'll say that again. 
There were classes of people that the Old Testament or that the Jewish teachers of the law refused to approach even to teach the law to. Jesus singles out for table fellowship, acceptance, benevolence, healing, and societal inclusion. Not only does Jesus not shun them, but he welcomes them. All we are told is that the sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus, and this was entirely too much for the Jewish leaders to handle. The people of the land were not spiritually observant in the way that the Pharisees wanted, but they were drawn to Jesus um, to the same degree that they were repelled by the Jewish ruling class. The teachers of the law knew that Jesus' loving behavior was in sharp distinction to their own, and thus a harsh critique of them as well. As a result, they grumbled. And this grumbling is actually much more important throughout the parables than it would initially seem. This is the fulcrum of Luke 15. In sharp contrast to the bitter complaining of the Jewish leaders, whose responsibility it was to care for the common Jewish people, including sinners and tax collectors, and who abdicated that role, Jesus will paint a picture of God that shows he will win back his wayward creatures with a sacrificial, costly love. Far from ostracizing and shaming the people of the land, Jesus will point out that he will do whatever it takes to reconcile them to the Father, and that heaven rejoices when even one such lost sinner is brought back to the fold. This is the wild difference between Jesus and his interlocutors, and it gives us tremendous insight into the character of God. If we are to understand Jesus' comprehensive response to the teachers of the law's complaint, we must take all three parables together, for they each make the same emphatic point. The three main characters, the good shepherd, the good woman, and the good father, whom we'll talk about, will do whatever it takes to recover that which belongs to them and has been lost. Jesus is saying, in effect, to the Pharisees, it is your job to reconcile the lost Jews to the fold, not to exclude them from fellowship and spiritual care. Since you have been derelict in that, uh, in that duty and begrudge my efforts to win them back, I will show you just how far your attitudes and behavior are from what God truly wants. You think you know the heart of the Father and enjoy favor with him, but you do not. So Jesus starts in earnest by grabbing the Pharisees and scribes' attention. If they were only halfway listening before, the interaction goes on to a knife's edge now. Verses 3 and 4 read, So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Instantly, Jesus had put the Jewish leaders in a hypothetical that would have been abhorrent to them. Asking them to consider themselves dirty, unclean shepherds is one thing, but to imagine that they were irresponsible in that hypothetical vocation, somehow losing a sheep, was a further insult to them. We won't get into how the position of shepherd had fallen into disrepute amongst the first century Jews since the time of David, or at least the first century Jewish rulers, if you think back to Psalm 23 and that, that it is a seemingly a venerated uh, vocation, it is sufficient to note for today uh, that the Pharisees would be offended by the hypothetical and further incensed at being blamed for the loss of the sheep. For those of you who took Spanish in school, and maybe Kendra can help if she's here. She's not here. Okay, she's not here. But um, if you, uh, this, this, um, tendency to speak in such a way 
that you eschew blame for things is very common in the Spanish language. And Jesse would, and, um, and others would know this uh, very well. Um, when you learn how to say, I, dro I dropped the plates in the kitchen in high school Spanish, uh, you don't necessarily say that I dropped the plates in the kitchen and they broke. You say, what? The plate dropped on me or the plates dropped themselves. Um, uh, and so, like uh, like Uncle Leo in, uh, no, not Uncle Leo. Ah, I was going to make a Seinfeld reference and it blew up in my face. All right. Um, it drove itself into the swamp. All right. So, um, when you, when you uh, speak of the plates dropping, it is you are absolving yourself of blame uh, in first century um, Galilean culture and in even sp Spanish culture to this day. Um, so, sorry, I lost my place. Um, so to say, for Jesus to say that the Pharisees were at fault for losing the sheep uh, would have been a break in custom for the time. Jesus continues in verse 5. And when he had found it, that is the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Um, okay, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So we know here at Trinity that scrutinizing details of Jesus' parable is often to our detriment. We... we miss the, the main point and, and investigate things that Jesus never intended to talk about, or to teach on, rather. However, a few notes about the search for the sheep are in order here. For one, if a shepherd was presiding over a hundred sheep, they likely belonged to various families of the village, and to lose even one would have been a significant setback. Second, the terrain over which the shepherd would travel could be hazardous. It's not like living in Indiana where you've got just flat you know, unabated farmland as far as the eye can see. Um, it would be no small effort to find the sheep and carry it back over such terrain. Third, carrying a large dumb animal on his back to reunite it with the other sheep would have been more taxing still. Shepherd boys were not large and muscular, and sheep were not as light as they might seem. Thus, the shepherd's efforts prove mentally and physically costly. It is his duty and joy to restore the sheep, but the sheep was, in truth, mostly at fault for going astray and certainly did nothing to assist in the journey back. It is in this light that the shepherd calls for a celebration in verse 6. The point is vitally important, for it will help us direct our thoughts about the, the other two celebrations to come. The party that the shepherd throws with his friends and neighbors is because of his tireless, loving efforts to bring the sheep home. The party is not for the sheep itself. That would make no sense. Let's say it again. The party that the shepherd throws is with his friends and neighbors is because of his efforts alone. It has nothing to do with the sheep itself. The sheep got lost on its own accord and merely allowed itself to be found and restored. All of the meaningful work in the recovery was by the shepherd. Thus, a celebration is had, and as verse 7 records, in contrast to the bitter grumbling of the Pharisees, there will be rejoicing in heaven at such a restoration for sinful men and women. Thus, the main actors are clearly seen by the end of this parable. The, she the shepherd is Jesus, the 99 sheep are the Jewish leaders, uh, and the lost sheep are the sinners and tax collectors. Given the context of the parable, when, which we discussed earlier, 
you would have to say that this story tells us a great deal about the shepherd, but not much about any of the sheep, 99 or the lost. In this light, it would not be unreasonable to start referring to the story as the parable of the good shepherd and his lost sheep rather than the parable of the lost sheep, which is something that Bailey, Kenneth Bailey proposes. So let's see if the parable of the lost coin gives us any further insight into the other characters on stage, so to speak. If the, Pharisee, if the Pharisees thought they were going to get a break, Jesus fires off another salvo at the beginning of his next thought experiment. Verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses a coin, does not light a lamp and sweep through the house and diligently uh, seek diligently until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy... Uh, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus first told his listeners to put themselves in the place of an unclean, negligent shepherd. Now he tells them to imagine that they're an absent-minded woman. To the first century Phaeseric ear, there would have been nothing more distasteful than this. Women were second-class citizens, in their estimation, occupying a rung of society that was beneath Jesus' interlocutors. But here Jesus is humbling the teachers of the law while even, even while instructing them on the love of God. As with the parable of the good shepherd, let's give a few points of context here. First, the ten silver coins likely represented ten days' worth of wages for the woman's family, a large sum of money to, to villagers of meager means. Whether those coins were worn as a necklace, as some suppose, or stored in a cash box, or kept track of by other means, we can't say. Um, nevertheless, one, is, uh, one going missing on this woman's watch is a serious indictment if it is not recovered. Second, a typical house for such a family is v very hard to um, imagine living in the houses that we live in t uh, this day. Um, but even during the daytime, it would be dark inside and the house would be possibly windowless. This gives much more uh, understanding to why it would be so difficult to find a coin on the floor, in, even in the middle of the day. The floors would likely have been made of dirt and beset by cracks and crevices of various depths. It is against this backdrop that we can imagine the woman frantically lighting a lamp and sweeping vigorously to locate her missing coin. The diligence with, with, the, with which the woman searches is emphasized in uh, a way the shepherd's efforts in the previous parable were not. There's a bit more color there now. The shepherd's endeavors were largely left up to the listener's imagination, but not so with the woman. We are not told how long she scoured the floor, but as anyone who's looked for a set of car keys can attest in their own home, however long the search took, it probably felt like an eternity. Perhaps a better analogy for us today would be searching for a missing engagement ring gemstone in the sand on the beach. A daunting, exhausting effort might be required, but the reward of eventually finding it would be worth the sacrifice. Thus, though it may seem odd at first for the woman to celebrate with her friends and neighbors after a first reading of this, it now becomes clear that the party is thrown for the same reason the shepherd rejoiced with those around him in the first parable. Namely, the woman's costly efforts have restored the coin to its rightful place safe in her family's possession. Knowing that the coin only has incidental importance in this story, we can safely relabel Jesus' hypothetical as the parable of the good woman who seeks diligently, or the parable of the good woman and her lost coin. 
And just as we pointed out with respect to the shepherds gathering of friends and family, the celebration is not about the coin. That would, again, make no sense, but rather about the woman's tenacity in recovering it. Jesus concludes this parable again by noting the great joy in heaven over God's efforts in restoration, in the restoration of even one sinner. Once more, Jesus is calling the Pharisees to align with him and adopt sim- a similar attitude and relationship to the people of the land that they so despise. In taking in the total counsel of the first two parables in Luke 15, we have been told a fair bit about the characters representing God, the shepherd and the woman, but very little about the characters representing the Pharisees, the 99 sheep in the first and no one in the second, or the sinners and tax collectors, the lost sheep and the lost coin. But that is about to change. The third and final parable starts off with a reprieve for the Pharisees. Jesus asked them to imagine that they are a man with two sons. So far, so good. We'll dissect this parable piece by piece as it's too intricate to put on the screen and keep in mind all at once. So verses 11 through 13, and he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. One of the most overlooked aspects of Jesus's third parable is that there are two sons involved, not one. The older son's involvement seems to be restricted to the bookends of the parable, but as we'll see, his absence in portions is quite central to Jesus's rebuke of the Jewish rulers. The upshot is that though the action revolves around the younger son throughout the parable, it is the father and older son who are the main characters and about whom Jesus is proposing to teach. More on that in a few minutes. As Kenneth Bailey points out, once this cast of characters is introduced to the Pharisees, the Near Eastern mind would, of first century Galilee would start to order them in, uh, well, in order of importance. First, the father. Second, the older son. Third, the younger son. That is the order of importance. As a result, the opening speech from the younger son is absolutely shocking, as most of you will probably know. It is shocking, offensive, distasteful, and totally out of order. We have likely read the passage too many times and are too far removed from the culture to feel its true weight, but it is equivalent to telling your father, I want you dead. We also don't appreciate how radical the request is, as we who are 21st century Westerners Uh, are largely disassociated from our families in terms of our identities. In contrast, the first century Jew's identity was intricately intertwined with that of his or her family. Men and women spent their entire lives preserving the wealth, customs, religion, and honor of the families they were born into. They lived, worked, and socialized primarily with their immediate family and extended family. So the younger son not only wishes his father dead, but he is violently breaking with everyone and everything he has known. At this point, the Pharisees expect Jesus to tell them that the father launched into some sort of verbal tirade, chasing his son out of the house, perhaps beating him in the process, as this would have been expected. But that did not happen, as we know. Instead, Jesus tells them that the father granted the request. It must be said that there is no analogous behavior in the whole of Jewish literature up until this point to what the father has done here. If you have children, you know what a dagger to the heart 
the son's request would be. Actually, a literal dagger to the heart might be preferable. The fact that the father reacts with such long-suffering patience and love is um, is just as unexpected as the son's words are. This is the first example of self-emptying, humiliating love that the father is willing to suffer for his son. That the father grants the insulting demand of his son is a second example of the costly benevolence. Jewish fathers could, in theory, divide up inheritance for their children while they were still living. But this would be done in the rarest of circumstances at the end of the father's life, and it would be invariably initiated by the father. It would never come at the behest of a son. The father in this parable, however, seems to be in good health and is approached by his son, not the other way around. This, again, would have been unheard of. At this point, the older son, who has been absent so far, is expected to intervene and broker peace between the two. He is expected to rebuke his younger brother for such insolence and pledge loyalty to his father's continued life and care. But the older brother is nowhere to be found. Verse 12 tells us that the father divided up his property between them. That's a key word, which means the older son accepted his two-thirds of the estate and the younger brother his one-third. Now, the father has been deeply offended by both of his sons, Yet we only see patience and love on his part. This is the third example of self-disregarding, unimaginable love by the father. As far as the arc of restoration and recovery goes, the father has not one, but two sons to reconcile. Again, by accepting the inheritance, the older son has just as much offended the father. And the father must not only reconcile them, these sons of his, to himself, but to his family, extended family, and to his village as well. Near Eastern villages are small, and the news of such egregious conduct would have spread quickly. The villagers may have even enacted a formal ceremony that signified the cutting off of the younger son from their lives. He would be, for all intents and purposes, dead to them after that. Verse 13 tells us that the younger son gathered all he had, which is another way of saying he liquidated the father's inheritance. This would mean that the livestock, land, belongings, etc. would need to be turned into cash for his upcoming journey. As we mentioned, those in his immediate vicinity were likely the only market to sell off what he had, and they were not going to give him a fair price. Haggling, as, most, as many of you may know from having visited different parts of the world, especially the East and Near East, um, haggling can take a long time. Um, it can sometimes take weeks, months, or years, depending on if the transaction is a large or small one. But we are told that the boy completely liquidated in and not many days later. He was desperate to leave and took what he could get in the time he could get it. Verse 13 concludes that the younger son squandered his property in reckless living in a far country. The far country likely implies a Gentile land, but how the son came to be without money doesn't necessarily involve sinful behavior. It could, but we don't know. These are, there are likely better, softer ways to translate what the younger son is up to in the foreign country. Also, we tend to view the younger son's conduct in the far country negatively as a result of the elder son's presumptuous accusations later in the parable. Um, But the elder son was speaking from ignorance and had no idea what his brother was up to. Regardless of how it happened, the younger son lost all he had. Verses 14 through 16 tell us, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, so no one gave him anything. Most of you already know the indignity of a once affluent Jew trying to, uh, tending to swine and longing to eat the undigestible carob pods that the pigs consumed. He went from having all he could have asked for to having nothing. Note that his main concern, and this is extremely important, note that his main concern, as anyone in a famine would have as well, is getting food. This will be important in a minute. Gary Inrig points out again, in a time of famine, pigs are more valuable than people. And so, as he says, no one gave him anything. The son's most pressing problem was hunger, nothing else. Verse 17 continues. Uh, it might continue. Mm, I think I just mislabeled it. Yep, just mislabeled it. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This passage is quite the oil slick, because um, for most of us, most of our lives, we've been taught that this is the moment where the prodigal comes to himself, so to speak. He repents, he strikes out for home, having learned a valuable lesson except that that interpretation doesn't fit at all either internally or externally with what we're reading. Externally, this does not at all fit with the previous two parables. Restoration of the sheep and the coin were achieved through the sacrificial efforts of the shepherd and woman, respectively. The sheep and the coin did absolutely nothing to engender their own rescue. So are we to conclude that Jesus is making the exact opposite point in the third parable that he's making in the first two? This doesn't seem very likely. Internally, the prodigal coming to himself and realizing the error of his ways in the far country seems dubious given the preceding text. This seems more like a modern-day Western interpretation. We are told once again that the chief main concern of the prodigal is hunger. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? His concern is not reconciliation with the father, his brother, or community, as we would think. It is hunger. How can I address my hunger? We can see what is top of mind quite clearly for him by the plan that he hatches. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The solution he comes up with is money to buy food, getting hired back on being able to buy food and have food once again, which means his main concern is once again hunger. Further, the phrasing here is instructive. Instructive. If the I have sinned against heaven and before you language seems familiar, it's because Pharaoh said the exact same thing to Moses in Exodus 10.16 when he was trying to manipulate Moses. Jesus may have been expecting the Pharisees to call this to mind. Also, the request to make me like one of your hired servants is telling. If the prodigal's primary worry was about restoration and repentance, this demand makes no sense. If the goal is money and food, it makes a lot of sense. No truly repentant sinner, having done anything akin to what the prodigal had just done to his father and community, would make demands of the one for, from whom he is seeking forgiveness. This is like a likely a ploy by the prodigal, just like his initial request to the father to get what he wants when he wants it. Verse 20, 
And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. To put it bluntly here, Jesus' emphasis um, in verses 20 to 24 is not the return of the son, but the unbelievable actions of the father. The father's conduct here is the fourth and most striking example of the self-emptying, strident love that we've been seeing over and over. To see the son at a great distance, the father would have to be actively watching for him every day. The father's estate is probably not on top of some hill where he can just glance out the window like we would imagine and see his son coming. The father would have been faithful in watching for the son as he was probably gone for years and would have gone out of his way to do so. The prodigal's village would have been very compact, likely, with tight winding streets, and returning to his father's house would have meant navigating through hostile neighborhoods. In this light, we can understand the father's diligence. He knows his son will probably fail. He knows his son will probably fail uh, and will come home, but he doesn't want him to face the scorn and hatred of the community. When the father sees the prodigal on the road leading to the village, several important things happen. First, the father has compassion on the son. Just as in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the character least likely to show compassion ends up doing so. The father has every right to have his son beaten, disown him, ignore his requests, and so forth, but he chooses not to. Second, the father runs to the prodigal. We could spend forever on this, but we won't. We'll just say dignified men who have vast wealth do not run, especially in that culture. For nearly a thousand years, translators were so embarrassed by the conduct of the father that they used words like hastened or hurried or presented himself to describe his reaction to seeing his son instead of translating it literally. Running is seen as an activity for children, not well-respected elders of a community. It was disgraceful for a Jewish man even to show the skin on his legs for a brief moment. Third, the father falls upon the son's neck and kisses him. Note that he didn't wait to hear the son's prepared speech. The father makes the first action upon getting to the son. The father is the one, um, even even if the son has returned with impure motives, the father doesn't care, and I would think that we all understand uh, and can relate to that on some level. Further, it is the son who is expected to fall upon his face and kiss the feet of his father, not the other way around. The Greek in the text in this case shows that the father kissed him repeatedly, fell upon his neck and kissed him. This is an amazing series of gestures by the father, as the entire village would likely have been watching this self-emptying and humiliating love that he has for his young son, younger son. Notice that when the prodigal does give his prepared speech, fashion out of me a craftsman is omitted. That phrase, fashion out of me a craftsman, is nowhere to be found. This is likely in light of the father's loving conduct. The prodigal is disarmed and perhaps for the first time is genuinely repentant. Reconciliation and repentance from the son at this point fits with the previous two parables as the father has exerted a Herculean effort to win back his son. 
just as the sheep and the coin, in some sense, accept that their rescue is entirely at the initiative of the shepherd and the woman, so too the prodigal finally concedes to his father's long-standing efforts to love him radically and unconditionally and restore him. Thus, we have an interesting way of defining repentance across all three parables, and that would be acceptance of being found. In verse 22, the father calls for his servants to bring his signet ring, his best robe and sandals to clothe a very likely or likely a nearly naked, shoeless and destitute son. To this um, amazing father, there is no more room for the indignity of the prodigal's past decisions as the boy was well and truly restored by his efforts. Not content, the father calls for the fattened calf to be killed and for a celebration to be had with the village. Such an animal may have served up to 200 people and would have been accompanied by a band, dancing, and other activities. This is obviously, in part, an effort to reconcile the prodigal to the community that he has alienated and who cut him off years ago. You will recall the reason for the parties in the previous parables. They were held as a result of the strenuous, loving efforts of the shepherd and the woman, Jesus is making the exact same point here. The long-suffering, costly love of the father is what is being lauded here, not the return of the son. The party is only incidentally to do with the younger son. It is specifically and primarily for the efforts of the father, just as it was in the previous two parables. So we conclude with these verses, verses 25 through what will be 32 as we continue to read. Now his older son... The father's older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out to him and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother. uh, This your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus' critique and admonition to the Pharisees is about to come into full view as the elder son who represents them re-enters the parable. Upon coming in from the field and hearing not only that his brother is alive and has returned, but that he has been reconciled to the father and village, i.e. has been received back safe and sound, or in some translations has been recovered with peace, the older son becomes enraged. He will not go into the party and will not participate in his brother's restoration. He is embittered and begrudges his brother's newfound status and his father's self-sacrificial efforts. If there was any doubt before, the Pharisees are keenly aware that they are squarely in Jesus' crosshairs now. They complain rather than celebrate when a sinner is restored to the fold. Though, they may be, though there may be rejoicing in heaven, As the first two parables told us, there is only resentment and condemnation from the older brother and the Pharisees. Verse 29 gives us one more description of the remarkable father, and it is the fifth example of his dogged self-emptying care for his sons. The older son is entreated by the father to come in to the party and celebrate. Attendance would have been expected from the older son. The father should never have had to ask or beg for it. 
the elder son's absence would also be conspicuous to the villagers in attendance. It must be said that amidst Jesus's critique of the Pharisees, he is clearly telling them that his costly love is also to reconcile them as well, not just the prodigal or people of the land. Despite the Pharisees' foolish and egotistical and bitter hearts, Jesus' offer is as much for them as it is for the sinners and tax collectors. Despite the father, uh, sorry, um, despite the father's pleading, the older son then launches into a wild, disrespectful tirade. Look, he says. How many of us even today would address our fathers in such a fashion? This father's patience knows no bounds. Remarkably, this confrontation likely occurred within full view of the guests. The father's humiliating himself a third time for the benefit of his beloved sons. His words here, um, that is the older sons, are extremely problematic. He didn't serve the father. He enjoyed all the benefits of sonship. He didn't flawlessly obey the father. Um, we think here of the rich young ruler from Luke 18.21, who claimed to have kept all of the commandments since his youth. It's like, yeah, right. Nor would he have ever been refused a goat to celebrate with his friends. These are just patent lies. And when he says, this son of yours, it is obviously a wholly inappropriate title and again insults the father. Finally, the older brother's slanderous accusation that the prodigal had wasted all of his money on prostitutes is without foundation. The older brother's concern, astonishingly, lies not with the well-being of his long-lost brother or the dignity of his father, but with his share of the inheritance which he perceives to be in danger somehow. Having had to endure this speech, the father is, again, fully expected to have his older son beaten and cast off. The father stands publicly in disgrace, yet once again he, res he responds with a costly attempt at reconciliation. The father gives his reason not only for having the banquet, but for urging the eldest son to join the festivities. The father reminds the old eldest son that the prodigal is your brother. That turnabout and phrase is important. In light of the eldest son speaking of the prodigal as this son of yours. Lastly, the father reminds the eldest son of just what has happened. Your brother was dead and buried. He destroyed his relationship with me, with you, and with the entire village. However, I sought him out. Through my selfless, costly, humiliating love, I restored him to all of us. He is alive now not because he repaid the debt that he owed me, but because he accepted my offer of forgiveness. He was truly separated from us, but my efforts have done for him what he could never do for himself. Come, celebrate, and be reconciled to all of us as well. These are the last words of the chapter and the parable, and Jesus goes no further. His message to the Pharisees and teachers of the law is clear. Since you have abdicated your role as the spiritual caretakers of the sinners and tax collectors, I will pursue them instead. Not only that, but I will reconcile them to the Father and recover them wherever they are. No effort is too great to love them. All they need to do is accept being found by me. And the same is true for you, self-regarding Pharisees. My self-emptying love is for you as well. All you need to do is accept my monumental efforts on your behalf. Will you agree that you cannot earn favor with me and consent to the rescue that I'm offering? If you do so, there is great reason to rejoice with all of heaven. 
So the costly, humiliating love of God would be seen in its most fantastic and radical form in the crucifixion of Jesus, as we know. Among Christ's listeners and conversational partners on this day, it is unlikely that any could have fathomed the true length, lengths that he would go to win them back, and all of us, from the dead. It is appropriate, since we have renamed the first two parables, to rename this one as well to the good father and his two lost sons. And after reading so much about the astonishing love of the Father in this parable, we must not underestimate how foreign such conduct would have been to Jesus' listeners. It was unheard of then, and it is still unheard of today. We may be reminded of Jesus' words in Luke 11.13 when he says, If you then who are evil, that is fathers, know how to give good gifts to, the, to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Even the most upstanding, righteous fathers that we have ever known pale in comparison to the care and love of our Heavenly Father. To conclude this morning, we do not know what the Pharisees chose to do upon hearing Jesus' parables, but the content of Luke 15 gave them an unambiguous picture, and it gives us an unambiguous picture of what the love love and character of God are truly like. Perhaps they scoffed at Jesus' stories, but we should be ever more grateful that the God we serve has done all the meaningful, humiliating work to win us back to himself. All we need to do is acknowledge his efforts uh, are sufficient and live in humble appreciation of them for the rest of our lives. A God who initiates such a costly, otherworldly restoration of his sinful creatures is a God worth serving and loving forever and ever. Thank you, Nate. Um, Poor Nate was not physically on his A game this morning. You could probably tell that with the sniffles. Broke into a lisp once and forgot Jack Klompas, which is, you know, if he can't remember Seinfeld, he's not feeling well. So thanks for doing that anyway, Nate. That that was fantastic. I always like uh, hearing Nate speak because he's a good um, student uh, and a good teacher. Yeah, and it loves God's word, studies it, uh, loves to share it with others. Um, Hopefully, one thing, you know, I've heard Nate talk about this topic before, eight years ago, and and in other occasions, and I still picked up a couple new things, especially the cliffhanger at the end. Somehow I'd kind of forgotten that. Um, But it goes to show you how bad uh, parables are for devotional reading, like just reading over them. you're almost certainly going to miss the point, if, and it just takes study, um, even almost sometimes more than didactic passages, which is fascinating. So um, we've done this before in our church with other passages, and it really helps when we see what the Lord is trying to get at. And in some ways, it shouldn't surprise us, because he even says, Jesus says himself um, that uh, the truth is hidden from those who don't necessarily have interest in hearing it, and um, therefore it takes work. work. And as he says, uh, one passage, for example, and I'll leave you with this, um, uh, Jesus says multiple times when he does uh, teach parables, he who has ears, let him hear. Um, So please stand while I read uh, later on in Luke 8, verse 18. Kind of uh, good marching orders for us this week, given that we've been given 
the truth of the parable directly, which Jesus's audiences were not always privileged to. And in a way that puts a certain weight uh, and onus on us um, to respond appropriately. So from Luke 8, 18, therefore consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what they think they have will be taken from them. So may our conversations be um, gracious and have God's truth on our lips as we um, go and love and serve one another. You're dismissed.